pray. Hey, as we begin this morning, um, you know, I appreciate a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago when I gave the message, um, I mentioned Elvis Presley, and, um, and what happened is that a bunch of people started sending me Elvis Presley things, and um, so I promise I will not say anything about Elvis today or anything else where people can start sending me Elvis things, all right, uh, or, or anything else. But I will say this, as we begin today, I want you to think about that excitement that, um, that we get. You know, the birth of a baby. Um, this past weekend, my family, we went to Pittsburgh. We went and saw the Dodgers play against, uh, against the Pirates. It was exciting, right, because we're, we're Dodger fans. And you're just in the crowd, and you're excited because your team's winning. Some of you go to Saber games, Bills games, whatever it is you do. Maybe at your kid's uh, choir concert. I don't know if you stand up and scream and yell, but, you know, we get excited, right? We have, we have an excitement about us in our life because we're just, we're overjoyed. We just have this joy in our life, things that are happening. You know, um, as we approach this morning's message, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Because a lot of times when we read the scripture or when we open God's word, some, you know, a lot of times we read it and, you know, if we're in Leviticus and it's just names or we're in these passages of scripture, you know, is there anything to get excited about there? I'm not really sure sometimes, you know what I mean? But today's passage, Paul, as we are going to look at, man, he's excited. He's excited about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do. And I think it's, a, it's fitting this morning as we think about being celebratory and as we think about celebrating the birth of a new life and about enjoying the life that we have. Now, as we begin this morning, uh, let me just give you a little bit of introduction of where we've been, where, 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 where this, uh, this sermon series through the book of Romans has taken us. The book of Romans, most people believe, was written by the Apostle Paul while he was on his third missionary journey. As you know, Paul traveled uh, the, the world at the time, uh, the known world at the time, and he was a uh, missionary. He, just, he was on fire for the Lord. He traveled from country to country. He'd stay a couple weeks. He stayed a year. He stayed, you know, the various amounts of times in different locations, and he would preach the gospel. And the Bible tells us the stories in the book of Acts as they, as they would go into these different uh, cities. And as we get to uh, the book of Romans, it's believed that Paul wrote this while he was in the city of Corinth. So if you've heard of the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that's a city, Corinth. Uh, it's believed that Paul wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth during his third missionary journey. And the reason we believe that is because he mentions people within the book of Romans that are associated with the, book of, with the city of Corinth uh, in the book of Acts, okay? And the other thing about the book of Romans is that we also believe that Paul at this time probably had never been to Rome, to that church. So unlike the book of Acts, where Paul will enter a city and establish a church, it's, it's, it's most likely that Paul had never been to Rome and he never established that church. So this was not a church where he knew the members, uh, where he knew a lot of people. In fact, one of the reasons he wrote the book of Romans was to prove to those people who he was. It was like his resume. This is who I am. This is what I've been preaching. So there's a unique aspect about the book of Romans that I want to point out this morning before we get into the, the text. You know, have you ever been, uh, have you ever heard someone tell you stories about being somewhere? You know, let me, let me go back to Elvis. My, my mother-in-law, she went to an Elvis concert, right? And she, and every, she always tells me the story about being at an Elvis concert, right? I've never been to, Elvis died when I was, you know, a couple, year or two old, right? Um, so I've never been to Elvis concert. I've never been to a Beatles concert. I think my mother-in-law might have even went to a Beatles concert. I'm not sure. I'll have to look over here to my wife to, to see if she's nodding on yes or no. 
Uh, but you know, I, I can listen to the Elvis concert, Aloha from Hawaii on CD, right? I can listen to the record. But when I watch the video of it, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good show. But can you imagine actually being in the arena when Elvis performed? Or you could pick anybody, right? Any, any famous artist, right? Billy Graham, for example. I've heard of Billy Graham through all my whole life. But it wasn't until 2002 or 2003 when he came to San Diego and I got to see him in person at the crusade. Man, I was blown away. Here was a guy that Billy Graham, um, you know, was getting older in his years. And they had to help him up on the stage. You know, they had, a, they had a, two people on each side had to help him up onto the stage. But let me tell you, when he got in front of that pulpit, it was like the Holy Spirit took over and he just preached. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And that's how I like to equate this book of Romans. Paul had never been to this church before. He had never been to and met all the people in the congregation. But yet he writes this letter to them to explain to them everything that he believes and everything that he's been preaching. It was as if this whole book of Romans, if we were sitting at the feet of Paul listening to him preach for the very first time and hearing everything he had to say. That's important for us this morning because... He gets into, the, in the book of Romans, he gets into some deep theological truths. He gets, into the, uh, he gets into the heights of what the gospel is and what it means. And so as we look at this segment of scripture today, Romans 8, 31 through 39, you know, he begins by saying right at the very beginning, he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? Well, what are the things he's talking about? Quite honestly, it's chapters 1 through chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Paul says here, what shall we say in response to these things? This is not the first time that Paul has called us or reminded his readers to look back and to say, hey, think about what I've said before because I want you to put it in light of what I'm about to say. Think about uh, what shall we say in response to these things. Well, what has Paul said through the book of Romans? What has, what has been the thrust of his message in the book of Romans? Man, if there was one word that we could say this morning about Paul and Romans, it would be the gospel. Everybody say the gospel this morning. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is what Paul has been preaching for the past seven and a half chapters of this book. As a matter of fact, if you take a look back at chapter 1, of Romans, he begins by stating, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to the Jew and the Gentile. He begins right up front by saying the gospel is the most important thing. Then he goes into chapter 2 and chapter 3 and he explains that all of humanity, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, is guilty of sin and in need of a savior. In chapter 4, Paul says that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and not by following a strict set of rules. In chapter 5, Paul says that there was the first Adam who was a man in the garden who sinned. And there was the last Adam who died on a cross and brought justification and salvation to the whole world. And then in chapter 6, Paul says... Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been buried and raised to life with him just as his death and resurrection occurred. And then in chapter 7, Paul makes a startling confession. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Mm, that's a tough question. But he answers it. 
by saying, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. When Paul says, what shall we say in response to these things? In verse 31, what he wants you to listen up this morning and hear is, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say in response to the things that God has done in our life? To the salvation that he has brought, to the justification, to the life that he has given for us. What shall we say to these things? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it's important for us to put this in context of who Paul the Apostle was. This was a man who grew up religious. Matter of fact, he states in other places he was faultless before God. If we were to take the, the law of the Old Testament and stand Paul next up to it, in his own eyes, he was faultless. That's a, that's a big boast to say. This is a man who was instructed by the leading theologian of his time. This was a man who grew up knowing the scriptures. This is a man that could probably run circles over around every single one of us today when it comes to theology and the Old Testament because that's who he was, that's what he grew up in. This was a man who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And prior to that encounter, this was a man who persecuted the church. The Bible says in so many words that he literally dragged people out, he arrested people, he chased after people, he went after people. This was a man who had an encounter with Jesus. And now for him to say, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, there's power in that. There's power in that statement. In Romans chapter 8.31, what shall we say in response to these things? And then he goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who died, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and hallelujah for that truth of God's word. Let's break this down this morning as we take a look at what Paul is saying here. Now that we look at what Paul has said, let's look at what he's saying here. What is being said in these scriptures? Well, he begins right off by saying, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this, in, uh, this question that Paul asks, it's a rhetorical question. Each one of us could answer that question ourselves. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Anybody have an answer this morning? No one. No one. In fact, I love how one commentator notes that really what we could even say here is that since God is for us, or because God is for us, who can be against us? You know, this idea that Paul would even ask this question is interesting because he's already described to us the great glories of the gospel in the last chapters of this book. He's already described how, himself has, how he himself has been brought from death to life through Jesus Christ. And so for him to even ask this question, if God is for us, who can be against us, seems kind of ridiculous to us today. Because you've already described to us, Paul, that no one is against us. So why would you ask this question? Wow. Well, listen to what one commentator said. He said that this section of Romans says this chapter gathers up various strands of thought from the entire discussion of both justification and sanctification and ties them together with the crowning knot of glorification. Another has said all the human opposition that rises against us is meaningless in the final analysis because all the opposition in the world cannot overthrow the glory that God has laid up for his saints from the foundation of the world. Wow, that's powerful. Just in answering that question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And realizing that there is no one that can come against us if we are in Jesus Christ. You know, how does Paul answer this question, though, in verse 32? He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How does Paul answer his own rhetorical question? He answers it with the gospel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What you're going to see here as Paul begins to ask this series of questions is that every single time he answers with the gospel. He answers with the good news that Jesus Christ has died and rose again. Every single time he will ask these questions, he will answer with, with phrasing the gospel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Man, when you consider what Jesus did on the cross for us, when you consider the life that he gave for us, when you consider the life that Jesus sacrificed on the cross and then rose again three days later, there's power in the blood as we sing in that psalm. There's power in the work that Jesus did. And even that alone is enough should be enough for us to answer that question, if God is for us, who can be against us? As we move on in verse 33, Paul says, ask this next rhetorical question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Oh, another question, another rhetorical question for us. And he's answered by saying what? It is God who justifies. Who then is... It is God who justifies, he said. Once again, he answers with what? The gospel. It is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? The NIV adds a note here that says, no one. And Paul writes, Christ Jesus who died, more than that was raised to life, 
is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So once again, how does Paul answer his question? With the gospel. It is Christ who died and was raised to life. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? And obviously the answer here is no. Paul once again asking the rhetorical question for us. You know, this passage of scripture is a great, I like to refer to it as a great bumper sticker passage, right? Great magnet on your fridge passage. Because this is a beautiful passage of scripture that, that um, we, we like to sing. Even matter of fact, we sang that song this morning. Uh, you are for me, not against me, right? And um, I am who you say I am. It's a great phrase. I'm sure many of you have read this or memorized this passage of scripture before. And we like the positive aspect of this passage. We like to stand on the promises of God and say, yes, God is for me. Who can be against me? But we have to be careful when we read this passage of scripture. Why? Because does this mean that God is for me in everything I do? Does this mean that I can go and get a ticket for the mega millions and God is for me? I mean, is that what we're talking about here this morning? You know what I mean? And I'm sure some of you have probably heard people speak about like that. Like God is for everything and, and yeah. No, that's not what the scripture is saying. How do we know that? How do we know that this, this scripture passage has nothing to do with lottery tickets and winning the World Series or the Super Bowl, right? How do we know that? Okay. How do we know that? Well, it's in this passage right here from verse 35 and 36. When he asks if trouble, hardship, persecution, notice what he does, does at the end, of, uh, the end of that section and, and as he quotes in verse 36. He says, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. If you take a look back at what this reference is, this is Psalm 44. And you can take a look at it um, at another time. But just to give you the gist of what Psalm 44 is, it's a celebratory psalm in the beginning. They are recognizing what God has done, bringing the Israelites out of captivity, rescuing them. But then the psalm turns and says, but God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, why are we, why are we in ruin at this time? There's not a sin we've committed that's caused us to turn, that's caused you to turn your face against us. Why are we in this situation that we find ourselves, God? You know, I think that speaks to a lot of us here in our congregation. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be some great sin for us to be in, in that maybe we are um, experiencing the ups and downs of our Christian walk. You know, I'm, I'm amazed when people use this passage of Scripture to talk about, right, the lottery tickets and the Super Bowls and the, and the World Series, when, when you understand that Paul references here a passage of Scripture that talks about struggling that talks about questioning your faith, that talks about um, living a life of faith, even though you may not understand everything that's happening. Folks, even in those times, who is for you? God is for you. Even in those times, it is God who is for us. Even in your hardship, in your persecution, in your famine, in your danger, God is for you. And so I love the beauty of this passage of scripture because it speaks to no matter, it speaks to whatever situation we may find ourselves in in our life. Whether it's the highs or the lows, God is for you. He goes on to say in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
And then this beautiful passage of scripture. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In other words, nothing can separate you. Oh, and in case I forgot something, nor anything else, Paul says. He goes through this whole list of things, death, life, demons, angels, the present, the future, nothing, height, depth, will be able to separate you. Oh, nor anything else. So in case I forgot something, there's nothing else. You know, that's what I like to refer to as the general clause. If you're in the military, right, you know there's the, the uniform code of military justice, the, law, the laws that we have in the military. And there's, there's 134 of them. And the very last one is called the general clause. And it's basically, if we can't get you on any of those other things that you did wrong, ah, we can get you on the general clause. We can get you on, we can figure out something to get you on, right? This is the general clause here. In case I forgot anything, there is nothing else that can separate us in all creation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whether you're in the highs or the lows, nothing can separate you. Now, this all sounds great. Right, bumper sticker theology, we can put a bumper sticker on our car, we can put a magnet on our fridge. But what does that mean when we, when we put it into real life situations? What does that mean for us this morning when we think about God's word impacting our life today? Well, I want to I take a look at a couple passages of scripture in the Old Testament that give, us, that give us a really good insight into what it means for God to be for us and not against us. If you've got your Bible, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. I'll give you a second to turn there. 2 Kings chapter 6. And some of you may be familiar with this passage of Scripture. I love this story. This is one of, those, well, this is one of my favorite Bible passages because I think it speaks so much to what, um, what Paul is talking about here in terms of being... Um, being, God being for us. Now what's happening here in this passage of Scripture is that the, Elisha is, is present and he is with his servant. And at the time the Scripture reads, beginning in chapter uh, 6, verse 8, that the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And somehow, as the king of Aram is deciding how he wants to engage, attack, destroy Israel... Elisha the prophet continues to, to know about what's happening. Why? Well, because he's a prophet of God, and that's what God does. He protects his people. And so Elisha is aware of what's happening. And so the, the king is very upset because he wants to know, I must have somebody in the Israelite camp that is a spy and is telling the Israelites everything that's about to happen. And the prophet, I'm sorry, and the, and the servant of the king actually says, no, it's because... Elisha is a prophet in Israel, and God tells the, king of, uh, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. And so we have this cool play on, on, on what's happening here, is that the king of Aram thinks he knows what's, ha- what's going on, but yet it's God who is in control of the situation. Well, as it comes down in verse 15, what's happened is that the armies surround Elisha and his servant. And as the armies are surrounding Elisha and his servant in the camp, Elisha's servant is very scared because he looks around him and all he sees are the enemy surrounding them all around. 
Okay, and what does Elisha say? Well, let's look at verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Can you picture that in your mind? The city being surrounded and you being that servant of Elisha whose eyes are open to the angel armies who are surrounding the city, who are for the people of God and not against. Can you imagine standing there and seeing that, looking into the spiritual and seeing that there is more for us than those who are against us? It's a beautiful picture of how God is for us, not against us, and how God surrounds us. What I love about this passage of scripture in 2 Kings is that what happens is that the army is struck with blindness. They are led into the city where they are fed, taken care of, and then let go to go back home. In essence, they are killed with kindness by the people of God. But it takes this moment where the eyes have to be opened, where Elisha's servant sees that God has surrounded them and protected them and he's with them and he will not let them go. He will not let them fall victim or prey to the enemies of God. Let's turn to Psalm 18 this morning and see how, um, I'm sorry, Psalm, uh, yeah, Psalm 18. Let's turn to Psalm 18 this morning and see how this plays out in one other character's life in the Old Testament. I think Elisha's story is a great picture for us about the spiritual aspect of our life. There is a spiritual realm that we are in, that we walk amongst. And even there, God is with us. God is for us. But what about the physical? Psalm chapter 18. Now before I get into this psalm, what I want you to do is I want you to notice what this psalm says before verse 1. There's a little bit of a title there. It gives a description for the director of music, of David, a servant of the Lord. And then it gives this occasion of when David sang this song. It says, he, David sang this song to the Lord, the words of the song, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So if you actually um, take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 22, this passage of scripture, this psalm is actually repeated in 2 Samuel as well. So we won't turn there. We'll use this passage here in Psalm. But I want you to listen to what David says. Keep in mind what the occasion is for this Psalm. It's when God delivered David from the hand of all his enemies. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who was worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. 
the, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Now listen how he describes God's response. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the, winds, on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstone and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast from your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me up out of the waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes, who was too strong for me. And then David goes on and on and on for the next 15 verses or so, just describing the greatness of God as God comes to deliver him. I love this imagery that David says here. God literally coming on the clouds. We just had a thunderstorm yesterday, right? God literally coming. If you can picture what was happening yesterday in the clouds and the thunder and the lightning and the rain. That's in the, God, it says, like riding, like this image of God riding the cherubim on the clouds coming down to deliver David from his enemies. Man, that is powerful. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Because God literally surrounds you with an angel army and makes his presence known on the wings of the cherubim. Man, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what was. I don't know what will. If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, this morning as we are gathered, I want you to hear me very clearly today. I'm not talking bumper sticker theology. I'm not talking lottery, lottery mega millions theology. I'm talking about God being with you in your very place where you are right now. Whatever struggle you're facing, whatever persecution you're in, whatever doubt of faith you may have, listen, God has not forsaken you. Why? Because Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. As I close this morning, I'm going to ask the band to come up. In verse 32 of Romans, Paul makes a statement. He said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In chapter 8, Paul uses this phrase, all things, three or four times. And it's interesting that um, he uses it as he begins to wrap up the book of Romans as well. It's interesting that in the book of Romans chapter 11, verse 36, in explaining 
the glories of God. This is what Paul says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. As we live on this earth and as we live this life, living in Jesus, listen, the Bible says that all things work together for the glory of God. And all things will find their purpose in him. So this morning as we are gathered and you are finding it hard in your faith to really understand how God is for you or against you. Listen, whether it's a dead car battery or a death in the family, God is in all things. And that's where our hope is. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you, Lord, that from the moment we wake up to the moment we close our eyes, you are in our presence, you are with us. Thank you for the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who have never encountered the living hope of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day they would be drawn to you and that they would know your grace, that they could stand with confidence knowing that all things are through you and that nothing can come against those who are in Jesus Christ this morning. If you are for us, God, who can be against us? No one. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.